Uh, this week's parasha is parasha's toldos. Toldos means descendants or children. And it starts off talking about the children of Isaac. And it just gives a little backstory before we learn about the children of Isaac. It starts off by telling us that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. And then they started praying because she was barren. We see this pattern again and again with the forefathers. Sarah didn't have any children until she was 90. Rebecca, for 20 years, is barren. And they start praying to get her, uh, to change that, to, you know, to try to intercede upon her infertility. And later on, we're going to meet as well Rachel, who's also going to be barren. What's the Jewish attitude towards infertility? You know, today, people are getting married later, and um, one in six couples has problems with infertility. They want to have, you know, they want to get, they get married later, so the biological clock has been ticking for a while. And there's a big problem where like 16 to 20% of couples have to go to infertility specialists and thank God we have all the capabilities um, or a lot of technology to help ameliorate that. It's interesting here that we see the first instance of uh, an attempt to try to uh, engage with the problem of infertility and what they do, they pray. And Isaac is praying and Rebecca is praying because she's barren. And the Almighty accepts his prayer, and she becomes pregnant. That's the third verse in this week's Parsha. As Jews, when we have a problem, even a problem that's ostensibly biological, what, how do we try to improve our situation? With, with prayer. It doesn't mean, of course, to neglect whatever we could do from a, from a medicinal perspective, of course, but prayer is always interlinked with every one of our efforts. Certainly in our spiritual efforts, uh, of course, you know, we want our kids to be good Jews, you would pray for that. But the Talmud even says, how do you become wealthy? Well, the easiest way is to just inherit your wealth, I would imagine. But what do you do if you want to become wealthy? You're starting from rags to riches. What do you do? So you got to do a lot of work. you got to engage in commerce, but you also have to pray. Because the Almighty has all the wealth, right? And... If you want to get a little slice of the pie, you ask the Almighty. I want to tell you guys a cool story that I heard about this. I read this over Shabbos. Uh, the Talmud tells us that if two people both need something, they pray for each other, In our, let's say in our instance, the two, two couples are suffering from infertility, and they each pray for themselves, but also pray for someone else, then they get answered faster. So there was a story here of, of, of a rabbi in Israel. He gets a knock at his door and he sees one of his students and his students start crying, starts crying to him that they're, that they're infertile and whatever, not everything they're trying to do is not working and give us some sort of advice. We're so devastated and sad about this. So he tells him, the Talmud tells us, that if you pray for someone else, then that helps your chances of having your prayers being answered for yourself. So he says to him, oh, I have a son who's also in having problems with infertility. Why don't you go, go to him and make a deal that for the next year, you'll dedicate your prayers for each other, so to speak. You'll, you'll pray for him and he'll pray for you. And we'll see if it works. Uh, he goes to his, uh, to the rabbi's son and they make this deal. I'll pray for you, pray for me. And voila, within a year, they both had babies. Pretty remarkable story. And, and the idea is, is that you know, prayer is trying to draw, you know, divine goodness 
into our world. That's what it is. It's trying to like create a pipeline between the spiritual realms of God and, and our world. God has all, all the babies and money and health and happiness and anything we could possibly want. The Almighty has an infinite abundance of it. But prayer is a way to try to create a, a conduit between, between us and God. So we're praying and we're trying to, th- we're throwing up these pipes and hope that, hope that something will come down to, uh, towards us. But if I pray for someone else, it's like I'm, I'm the pipe myself. I'm the one who's trying to provide the goodness for someone else. Well, if you're a pipeline, there's no way that the pipe itself remains dry. If you're going to be the conduit to bring some goodness to someone else, it'll affect you as well. So Isaac and Rebecca are praying, and the Almighty answers Isaac's prayer, which is a little bit surprising because Rebecca, like we saw last week, a really amazing woman. And she's praying, and why is his prayer have more efficacy than, than hers? And the Torah is very clear that the Almighty answers him, and Rebecca became pregnant. So Rashi tells us that Isaac, after all, was a tzaddik, but his father was also a tzaddik, was also righteous. Whereas Rebecca, she was a tzaddik, but her father was not a tzaddik. And therefore, his prayer is more potent than her prayer, because he's a tzaddik, son of a tzaddik. That's what Rashi says. And it's a little bit of a strange idea, because who's to say, you know, we can't control who our parents are. And you would think all the more so, if someone comes from a family of non-tzaddiks, and they are self-made men, then it will be all the more praiseworthy. It just seems to be the opposite. Why is the prayer of, of Isaac, why is it more effective? Because his father, what did he do to make earn his father? It's, the money doesn't work like that, right? It doesn't, doesn't seem fair. Just because your father was a tzaddik, you should have a greater power in your prayer. My grandfather explained this very interesting idea. He says that, what's prayer? Prayer is man coming to God. Man is mankind, of course. Coming to God and humbling themselves before God and saying, I need your help because I cannot do it alone. And it's submitting yourself to God. It's an act of humility. You're demonstrating that there's a void, a lack that you cannot fill. Only God, only the Creator can fill. Humility is very difficult if you come from a prestigious family. Your father's a tzaddik, your mother's a tzaddik, you come, you're, a, you're a scion of a family of tzaddikim. For someone like that, it's very hard to achieve humility. Well, if someone comes from a, you know, a no-name family, their father or their parents were not tzaddikim, well, then it's easier for them to have humility. But Isaac and Rebecca, their prayer was the same. But Isaac had a harder time getting there. Because to him, humility, it was more difficult because of his prestigious background. Therefore, because he worked harder to get to the same level of prayer, therefore, his prayer was more potent. And I think this is a rule across the board. The degree of difficulty that someone has in performing any mitzvah, in exact proportion to that, is how much power that mitzvah has. You know, I... I've been wearing tefillin every, every day since, since I was bar mitzvah. To me, 
I don't imagine, maybe I, maybe I got a little bit of reward for putting on tefillin every day, but it would be unthinkable for me not to do it. So how much of a barrier do I have to do it? Not much, right? I'd feel terrible. It'd be, it'd be, you know, so, so what do I gain? So the mitzvah, for me, is something that I don't really need to work hard to do because I'd feel like miserable and, you know, like a total loser if I didn't do it. So, for someone else who, you know, has to, who, who didn't grow up with that, and someone who needs to find some time in their busy schedule to do that, well, that's difficult and therefore their mitzvah is all more powerful. Shabbos. I've been observing Shabbos my entire life. To me, it's unthinkable to transgress Shabbos. It's unthinkable. It's like, would you take a uh, bobby pin and stick it into an outlet? It's, it's something you would never do. So how much value, how much value is that? On one hand, it's, it's good, it's beneficial, because you're now, you're accustomed, you're acculturated to that kind of life. But on the other hand, there's benefit for people who don't have that kind of background and that those mores towards mitzvahs, they don't, they need to work much harder and therefore their mitzvahs are more powerful. The Talmud tells us that in the place where Bali Tshuva stand, where the re- people that repented and came back to God, their place, so to speak, in the spiritual realms, even total tzaddikim don't achieve that, those spiritual heights. Someone could be a total tzaddik, but they're not as great as someone who wasn't necessarily a tzaddik and had to work hard to get it. So, uh, in prayer, it works the opposite. Someone who's a total tzaddik, it's harder for them to get it, so therefore their prayer is more potent. But the universal rule is, the more difficult, the more the more obstacles someone has in their path towards their mitzvah, the greater that mitzvah is. And I think it's a very inspiring lesson. You know, we, we want to do mitzvahs. It's hard. Some people have it so easy. Well, then there's more opportunity for you. If someone has it easy, they don't gain so much at, out of that. You know, we, we're, wherever our point of resistance, that's where a point of opportunity is as well. The prayer is effective and she becomes pregnant. And she does not have a, an easy pregnancy. The verse tells us, the next verse tells us that the, she doesn't really recognize yet that she has twins. And there's chaos, there's, an, there's fighting, there's agitation between the two boys inside of her. And she's in such agony, she goes to the prophet to find out what's going on. And he tells her, that there's two nations in your in your belly and two regimes that will go in different directions um, from from your insides and one nation will control the other nation and the older one will serve the younger one that's the that's the prophecy that she gets and it seems like she's mollified she's okay now so what's interesting here is the torah doesn't tell us about the morning sickness of Rebecca for no reason. Like there's, it's, this is not just unnecessary information. Obviously, there's some, there's some lesson. So Rashi says here, what was the meaning behind this struggle, this interuterine struggling? And Rashi says one opinion is that every time she would pass a house of Torah scholarship, Jacob would pine to leave. He would like start struggling to try to make his way out to go study. Whereas every time she passed a house of idolatry, Esau was pining to leave. 
So she got mixed messages. So remember, she thought it was only one child. So she thought this was, this was the, you know, the most confused child out there. On one hand, he wants the Torah and the prayer and God. On the other hand, he wants idolatry as well. What's going on? So she goes to the prophet. The prophet says, no, 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 no. It's two separate children. One of them wants to go here. And one of them wants to go there. And then she's okay. Because in Rebecca's mind, the worst thing is to have someone who has dual allegiances. On one hand, he's committed to God. On the other hand, he's committed to his Yetzirah. And he, what is he? Like, you know, where, where is he, you know, where is he grounded? And someone like that also is very hard for them to change. Because they are committed to God. Of course. They, 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 they go to, they go to the yeshiva, they go study. So they, you know, they have an alibi. They have justification because look, I'm committed to God. If someone in their head is sure that they're righteous, it's very hard for them to fix their other problems that they have. Whereas someone who's totally wicked, well, someone like that, they're totally wicked and there's no pretension of, of righteousness. Someone like that, if maybe they get sober up a little bit, they could be brought back in the fold. So in a weird way, She's happy now to know that one kid's righteous and one kid's wicked because, okay, they're, they're, there's hope for both of them. If there's only one child who's a total mess, then you know, that's hard to, to fix. A great question. The question that Dan's asking here is that the Talmud says, and we've spoken about this Talmud, that Yetzirah kicks in at birth. So pre-birth, there is no Yetzirah. If there's no Yetzirah, which is the force that propels us to evil, then how can Esau be struggling to go to the house of idolatry when there's no Yetzirah pushing him there? Is that your question? Yeah. Now, with Jacob, it's really not such a great question. Jacob's not a problem because Jacob, you still have a soul, right? Thomas says you have a soul at conception, but you only have Yetzirah at birth. So therefore... If someone is struggling to go to holiness before birth, that's okay. They have a soul. If someone's struggling to go to impurity before birth, that's the problem. Right. So, so the Maharal, which is uh, a 16th century giant, Torah giant, he speaks about this. And he says something which doesn't really answer my question. Like, I don't understand what he's saying. What he says is that there is the, the, an idea of holiness and impurity that is beyond the Yetzirah, something which is an entirely different, it's, it's not governed by the Yetzirah. It's almost like a, it's like a magnetic attraction towards good and evil that's not conscious. That's what he says. Which to me, it didn't really make it, it doesn't really answer the question. I don't understand it. That's what he says. And that's why for 10 years I've been thinking about it. But this week, I came up with an idea. What I discovered was that the Yetzirah that kicks in at childbirth is not the only degradation of the soul. Previously, we had, I had assumed, my working hypothesis was previously that the soul has no draw towards evil before the Yetzirah gets there. That's what I had thought. Turns out I was wrong. Because if you look at the Talmud that describes the development of the soul, 
and the soul kicking and screaming because the soul's not happy. All of our souls, by the way, that's in, the, in this room, they're all miserable. Your soul would love nothing more than for you to die and to be able to go back to the spiritual realms. That's depressing, but that's true. So the Talmud describes the soul has to be forced into the the baby and has to, the Almighty has to appoint angels to ensure the soul doesn't escape because it wants to escape. And now it's bound with the Yetzirah and it's miserable. And death, in a weird way, is liberating for the soul. But what the Talmud makes clear when I discovered this recently was that the soul indeed is entirely pure, but there's actually three distinct demotions that it has along the way before someone's born. The first thing is that it's taken out of the spiritual world and put into the physical world. The second thing is that it's taken from being entirely soul identity, and now it's mixed with physical identity. And the last thing, and the final knockout punch, is where the Yetzirah happens at birth. But even before birth, and even before conception, the soul is extracted from a spiritual box in heaven, and it's brought before God, and God tells the soul, okay, well now we're putting you into a human, and the soul goes absolutely ballistic. What? Don't do it to me. Why would you do this to me? This is terrible. I, I, I don't agree. I, I. Why? And it's and then it's thrust into the tiny zygote. And it's crying, and it's miserable, and chicken and screaming. Why? A, because it's taken out of the spiritual world, and B, because now it's bound to a physical entity. And it cries a third time at birth, when it gets to the Yetzirah. So there's three times along the way that the soul is complaining, and there's three times along the way that it is removed from higher levels of the spiritual realm. On one, when it's taken out of that world, put into a physical entity, like a physical identity, and lastly, at birth. So to me, this is already the kernel of the answer. The answer is, is that yes, a soul in its purest form has nothing pulling it towards evil, if so, if you were right, and I was right, that the soul only gets tainted when the Yetzirah only gets sullied, only gets diminished. When the Yetzirah is introduced at birth, it's not possible to have any sin. But if it already starts, on maybe on a lower level, it starts all the way at conception. Yes, the child has a soul, but the soul is now part of a physical entity. There's some sort of physical entity there as well. Now the soul is diminished, and there is some idea of, of, of physicality that's influencing the child. Well, maybe there's room there for, for sin of some sorts to happen beforehand. So to me, this was a, a novel insight. And just to entreat you, it turns out that when the, before a child's born, the Talmud tells that there's an oath that they made the child swear. What's the oath? Be it tzaddik. And don't be a Russian. Be righteous. And even if the whole world tells you you're righteous, in your eyes, view yourself as wicked. You still need, still have room to improve. And you should maintain the purity of the soul. So, we have a pure soul. It's mixed with all these other ingredients. It's got now in the physical world, in a physical body, plus it has the Yetzirah. And it's told, it's encouraged to become a tzaddik and preserve the purity of the soul. As such, we perhaps could say that 
the conflict that we have in our lives is really, you know, from three different areas. We have a conflict because of the world that we're in. And we're in a physical world, whereas our soul is from the spiritual world. And that is a conflict of purpose, right? What, what, which world are we living for? Which world are we investing towards? Additionally, we have a conflict of identity. What are we? Are we a body or are we a soul? The, well, the body, if we say we're a body, then what happens? In 60, 70, 80, 120, 120 years, the body's put on the ground and it starts to decompose. So if we believe that we're identity is a body, then there's a shelf life. Then all of life really has to be minimized to 100 or whatever years we live, because then the body, we all know what happens to a body after death. If we're a soul, then we're living for eternity. And lastly, we have a Yetzirah. And Yetzirah, we've said, Yetzirah, the Talmud tells us, is a, um, a foreign God that we have within us. Well, the conflict that that presents is that we have God, and we have the foreign God, who is our master, who tells us how to behave. The Yetzirah is someone which is a foreign God, because he says, behave in a way that God does not want you to behave. What I found further was that the sources indicate that to become a tzaddik, that is in, also in three different realms. The Talmud says, a tzaddik is someone who gets all I'm about, who gets the world to come. I.e., in the conflict between the two worlds, he opts for the next world. The Talmud also says that a tzaddik is someone who resists their yetzerah. What does that have to do with the next world? It's not clear. But the point is, is that resisting your yetzerah, resisting the foreign god, by definition, is embracing God. Thus, in the conflict of who's your master, they're opting for God. And lastly, Talmud also says that a tzaddik is someone who does a mitzvah. A mitzvah is an act of a soul. The only reason why someone would do a mitzvah is because they are identifying as a soul. As such, these three despaired areas are really reflections of three different areas of conflict that we have based upon the three different emotions of our soul from the higher realms to this world, from the entirely spiritual identity to the physical identity, and from having God as the only soul dominion to having Yetzirah. So clearly from this story, it's, it, there's indication that it's possible to sin in some realm, or at least to have a desire to sin, even before the Yetzirah. Well, that's probably a result of the physical world, right? Remember, what was idolatry? Idolatry was always about a physical representation of a higher idea. And it's anathema to us because we believe that the higher realms should be entirely spiritual. Well, idolatry is, is, is taking a spiritual concept and, and presenting it in, in a physical way. Well, if someone is in a physical world and that's, that's controlling their identity, well, then it makes sense that they should maybe try to pine for that. But at least the ground, the, you know, the ground Work has been laid for such a, for such a, I still like the question. I think it's a great question. Um, there is a Talmud. Sorry, we went off topic, but it's too late now, right? The Talmud says in the book of Yoma, what happens a child on Yom Kippur? Well, mother on Yom Kippur, expectant mother on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, you're supposed to fast, but she has a craving. And we know sometimes the cravings are not necessarily based upon real hunger. It's just a craving, right? And that's a product of the baby, really, right? So what do you do if it's Yom Kippur and the mom has a craving? And we're scared that she may lose the baby or she may get injured. Like it's, it's, it may be a case of, you know, it's a danger to the life. 
mom or baby doesn't matter. What do you do? Mama says what you do is you whisper into the ear of the mother and you tell the baby, so to speak, it's important today. There was once a story of a mother who was who was expecting, and it was Yom Kippur, and she got a craving, and they brought her to the rabbi, and the rabbi whispered her in the ear, today's Yom Kippur, and right away the craving subsided, and the rabbi declared, this baby is going to be a huge tzaddik, and one of the greatest rabbis of the, of the Talmud was that baby. And the next story is the same, it's the same episode, same narrative, Mom, it's Yom Kippur, the mom has a craving, they go to the rabbi, they whisper, the baby refuses to capitulate, and the rabbi declares, oh, people could be sinners even before they're born, and a very famous thief who used to stand on the crossroads and molest all the passerby was that baby as well. Once again, your question would, would imply, how is it possible that someone, even before they're born, before the Yetzirah, that they're already kind of heading in one direction or the other? Well, the answer is, is that there's something else that maybe could determine the behavior or at least the instincts of the child. I think it's still a good question, but at least there's some sort of framework that we could use to try to give ourselves maybe a, an answer. So the kids are fighting in utero, and they're fighting because of their desires. One opinion of Rashi is because of their, you know, Jacob wants to go to the house of scholarship, and Esau wants to go to the house of idolatry. Rashi gives a second opinion, is that they're fighting in the destiny of two worlds. A very strange idea. That it, even though they're in their mother's womb, but there's already a cosmic struggle between Jacob and Esau and the two worlds that they represent. Esau is the, is the master over this world, and Jacob is a master over the natural. And we'll see, like, we have, if we have this as a guiding light for us throughout the parasha, we'll answer a lot of questions. Now, even though they're right now in utero and the, the, the battle can't really be had yet, like, what does it matter to them that they're struggling? But I think the lesson here is that, or, or the idea here is that Jacob and Esau are opposites. It's like when you take two magnets that, and you turn them the other way around and they repel each other. Jacob essentially represents the next world. Esau essentially represents this world. And therefore, they're struggling, not because they decide that it made sense to fight, it's just that they're opposites and therefore they repel each other. And now they're forced to be together for this brief stint and that causes tremendous chaos because Rebecca is holding two mortal enemies that are engineered to be opposites uh, of each other. We see in the, throughout the Parsha that Esau has tremendous honor of his parents, or his father specifically. Uh, Esau excelled in the mitzvah of honoring your father. And it's really surprising because Esau, if we learn through other sources, he's really not a good guy. He's someone who would rape and murder without a second thought. So why does he excel in this particular mitzvah, whereas Jacob is not necessarily praised for being so exceptional in this particular mitzvah. And, it's also interesting, that the Talmud, when the Talmud talks about the mitzvah of honoring your parents, in the book of Kiddushin, 
The Talmud asks, well, what's the example of the greatest superlative honoring parents? And he gives a story about a fellow named Dama Benesina, who was a non-Jew, who honored his parents in a tremendous way. He could have made a lot of money, but the key to the safe was under his dad, and his dad was sleeping, and he didn't wake up his dad up, and he lost all the money. Okay, fine. So that's a great story of honoring your parents, but why bring a story of a Gentile? It's, once again, it seems like Esau here, he also excels in honoring parents. The Talmud reads an example of someone who's a non-Jew, and he excelled in honoring parents. How come this mitzvah is, is one that uh, non-Jews are particularly inclined to do? So we learned that Esau, he represents this world. Talmud tells us, if let's say you see, you see a lost item of your father and your Torah teacher in the river, you can only save one. Your dad's phone and your rabbi's phone, they're both in the, in the water, you, you can save one, which one do you grab? So Talmud says, you grab your teacher's phone or lost object. Why? Because your father brings you to this world. Your Torah teacher brings you to next world. And which world's more important? Of course, the next, right? Esau is someone who loved this world. He was representative of this world. In, in utero, Jacob is the other world's next world. Olam Abba. Esau is Olam Zed, this world, and that created all this conflict. But Esau arrives to the world and he's in the promised land. And he's so thankful to his parents. In his world, who would, who's, whose phone would he save? Whose lost option would he save? He'd save his dad's because he brought me to this world. Who cares about next world? And therefore, he excelled in this mitzvah. Jacob, he looks at this world as being just a stepping stone. It's much harder for him to really appreciate the, the contribution that his father uh, it, it gave to him because this world, who, you know, it's not so important in the grand scheme of things. It's interesting. We'll see that how this once again resurfaces when Jacob and, and Esau make a deal, a strange deal, that Esau's going to sell his birthright to Jacob. And we'll see that this really plays a part. They're born, and another strange thing happens when they're born. Esau was born, and he's very hairy, and he's like a blanket full of hair. And they call him Esau, which means he's already fully formed. And afterwards, Jacob is born, and he's holding onto the ankle of Esau. And the word Hebrew word for ankle is Ekev. And therefore, because of this episode, they're called Yaakov, Jacob. And Isaac is 60 years when they're born. So this is a cute story of what happened at birth. Oh, he was seizing onto his ankle. What's the significance? The guiding principle for our study of Torah is that the Torah is not telling us any unnecessary information. You know, if we learned about them fighting a utero, a cosmic struggle between the two worlds, when they're born, whatever we're told is a continuation of that struggle. Who is going to have, which world is going to be in pole position as we approach the finish line. Who is going to be the first out of the gate? Esau. But is he going to win? Maybe. It might look like that. But right at the last second, Jacob is going to kind of grab his heel and catapult himself to the finish line. It's not going to be certain uh, throughout the human experiment that Jacob and his ideals will ultimately triumph. He's going to be able to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And that's already demonstrated. Like Everything that we're learning about these characters at the beginning of their lives is really representative of, of, of what they 
of what they are manifestations of. Another idea that was suggested is that what's the role of Jacob and Esau? You know, of course, the Torah, if you continue the, the narrative of the Torah, we learn a little bit about Esau, but we primarily are going to talk about Jacob and Jacob's kids and his legacy. We'll, we'll, there'll be brief visitations with Esau, but he's not the main character. Jacob, at the beginning of his life, is trying to grab the ankle of Esau. He's trying to take something from him. We'll see he takes a lot from him. It seems like the role that the Jewish people, Jacob's destiny, that we have, we have to grab the holiness that Esau has. You know, when we, question we should ask, looking throughout Jewish history, is that why are the Jews always in every different place? We're such an itinerant nation. We can never settle down in one place. We're in Spain for a couple hundred years, and then we're kicked out, and then we go to Portugal, and we go to Poland, and we go to Germany, and we go to England. Every place we spend a couple hundred years, we're in Babylon, we're, we're with the Greeks, we're with the Romans, we're with the Assyrians. Why can't we just settle down, we're here, and we don't have much interactions with the outside world? I think the answer is maybe found over here. Our job as Jacob is to kind of finish that last little bit of holiness that he needed. It's almost as if Jacob had, he was entirely holiness, but he had a little bit of Esau in him, so to speak. And Esau was entirely this world, but there was a little bit of holiness in his ankle. And our job is to kind of seize the holiness from Esau, and thus every nation that we meet and we spend a couple of hundred years with, we have to kind of pull the holiness out of them and incorporate it into us until we're complete. That's the kind of big ideas happening over here. We don't learn a lot about their childhood. The first thing that we're told after their birth is that they grew up. And they went divergent paths. Esau became a hunter who was trapping, man of the fields. And Jacob... He was sitting in the tents. He would study. He was more the, the studious one. Interestingly, like their differences weren't clear until they became adults. And the next verse is, is very surprising because it says that Isaac loved Esau because he would make him barbecues, which is strange. You know, Isaac is the continuation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's one of the holy forefathers. And for him to make a miscalculation and not recognize who the Holy One and who the non-Holy One was, that's very surprising. How do we answer this? So I think one answer is that Isaac Isaac knew that Jacob was in the house of scholarship studying and Esau was a man of the fields. But what's more impressive, going back to what we, you know, the idea that we spoke about earlier, what's more impressive for someone to observe Torah while being surrounded by books, or someone to be out in the world and to engage with all these different kinds of people and yet to observe Torah. Of course, the latter is more impressive. So Isaac loved Esau because he was a man of the fields and he was always bringing him food, yet he had a certain degree of holiness. Isaac was able to appreciate the minimal holiness of Esau. Of course, he recognized that he paled in comparison to Jacob, but specifically because he was someone who went out in the world, yet he had some holiness, he preserved that. That's much more valuable 
you know, or at least pound for pound more valuable than the holiness of someone who's, you know, secluded from the world and in the tents and doesn't have interactions with the world that is in opposition to those ideals. Now, I think um, the way to understand Isaac's favoritism of Esau, I think a, a good way to understand it is, is as follows. If you look at, you know, the story, or we'll get to the story of Isaac intending to give blessings of bountifulness to Esau, and ultimately Jacob usurps those blessings. But then at the end of the Parsha, Isaac gives another set of blessings to Jacob, and this is what he calls the blessings of Abraham, which includes the land of Israel. So what's clear is that when Jacob was was blessing who he thought was Esau, what really was Jacob, he was only giving him blessings in the physical realm. He never intended to give Esau the spiritual blessings, the blessing of Abraham. It seems like Isaac, who was entirely spiritual and also somewhat of an ascetic, he intended that Jacob, i.e. the Jewish people, would follow suit and would also be entirely dedicated, like be in the in the tent and have no interactions with the outside world and let Esau have this world in its entirety. Let him have this world, Jacob will have the next world, and Jacob will have none of this world. That was his idea. And Rebecca, she was more of a pragmatist. She recognized that for, for Jacob to truly thrive in the next world, he'll need to have also a slice of the pie in this world as well. So, Jake, Isaac loved Esau because he's earthly, i.e. he loved the earthliness of him and he thought that should be his domain. Whereas Rebecca, she wanted everything to go to Jacob and ultimately that's the way it worked out. So the next, so that's just the introduction to their adulthood. Jacob makes a a big pot of uh, stew and Esau comes from the field and he's tired and he says, give me some of your soup. And Jacob says, I'll give you a soup, but first sell me the, the birthright. So Esau says, behold, I'm going to die. <clears throat> Why do I need this birthright? And Jacob says, okay, swear, swear that you'll give it to me. And he swears, and he sells the birthright, and he gives him bread, and lentil stew, and he eats, and he drinks, and he gets up, and he leaves, and he embarrasses and spurns the birthright. That's the story. Okay, so let's start from the beginning here. Esau is tired. So what does Rashi say here? Um, Rashi says he's tired. Why is he tired? Because he just went on a murder spree. And why? how does Rashi know that? Well, Rashi proves it textually. But also, we have to remember, the Torah is speaking, in, speaking to us in, in spiritual language. When someone's tired, it doesn't mean that they're physically tired. It means that they're spiritually exhausted. He had exhausted some of his spiritual vitality because of something bad that he did. So that's the first thing. Now, he tells... Jacob's like, okay, this is my opportunity. I'm going to ask for the birthright, which is a spiritual blessing, because he right now is disavowing his spirituality. He's tired spiritually, and therefore, maybe it's an opportunity for me to get that, just officially have it as well. So he offers him in exchange a little bit of physicality for a lot of spirituality. And which world does Esau live in? He lives in the physical world. To him... To have one dollar is greater than to have everything in the next world because one dollar is here. This is the world that he cares about. And what does he say? Behold, I'm going to die. So there's two ways to go with that. Rashi tells us 
that, you know, this was a, uh, what do they call it, an even-handed transaction? Everyone did their due diligence. Why? Because Esau asked Jacob, what does it mean to be the firstborn? Well, what is this, for, what is this birthright that you are talking about? He says, well, it means to, uh, you know, to be dedicated to spirituality and to work in the temple. Well, what's that? So he gives them all the list of the laws of the temple. And one of them is that if you do work in the temple, inebriated, you get executed. The, the notion of Esau having to have periods where he's not inebriated was an impossibility. So he says, well, if I have the birthright, I'm going to die because I will be inebriated. I'll be working in the temple and I'll be executed. And therefore, why do I need it? That's what Rashi says. So actually, Esau knew exactly what he was giving up. And he did it willfully. He doesn't want to have the birth, the birthright. He doesn't want to have the spiritual realm because there's no way he could give up the Jim Beam. No way. And, and this is interesting. Like, cause this is not deception. This is spurning the birthright, spurning the spiritual realm in favor of anything in, in the physical realm. And he did that willingly. Uh, there's a story. It's a Hasidic story. So it's probably been embellished over the years, you know. I'm not vouching for its accuracy. But either way, there was this guy who comes to the Rebbe, and he says to him, I need to marry off my daughter, and I need a thousand rubles. I don't have any rubles. What do I do? He says, well, here's one ruble. And you go out and you buy something. Whatever the first transaction you encounter, you buy. So he takes this one ruble, and he's traveling home. with. Well, how is he possibly going to buy something for a thousand rubles? You know, make a thousand ruble profit with one ruble? Fine, but that's what the Rebbe says. That's what you do. He tells a Hasidic story. So he goes and he stops off at a tavern on the way, or an inn on the way home. And he's sitting in the corner trying to figure out what his options are. And across the room, there's a bunch of like wealthy Jewish businessmen that they're doing their interactions and they're, 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 they're spying and selling. And they're, they're very wealthy and they're, they're dealing with diamonds and lots of business and commerce going on. And they're drinking, and they're getting merry, and he's sitting there in Nebuch. So they, they, they're walking over, and they're slapping him on the back, and they go over to this guy, and they say to him, Nu, do you want to buy anything? So he's like, ah, he's thinking, oh, I, I don't have any money to do well. But then he remembers what the Rebbe said. Anytime you, someone offers you a business deal, he says, yes, I, I want to buy something. Well, how much money do you have? One ruble. One ruble? What do you buy with one ruble? They start laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing at this poor Nebuch guy, right? So one guy's like, ah, I have an idea. You have one ruble? I'll sell to you my portion in Lamaba. For one ruble, would you buy it? He says, yes, it's a deal. They start laughing. He's like, well, you gotta make, gotta write a contract. So he writes the contract, all in front of the witnesses, and they think it's the most funniest thing around. This guy's willing to give up his last ruble for some imaginary world. It's a deal. He's excited, he has the paper, he bought it, and they're laughing because as if you know, they, they can't imagine how hilarious this is. And who walks into the door? The wife of the guy who sold his Alamaba for one ruble. And she, and, and he, he tells her, he's like, you won't believe what just happened. The funniest thing in the world to see that guy over there, the decrepit guy. He just, I just, I just built him for his last ruble because I, uh, I sold him my Alamaba for, for, for his last ruble. Isn't that funny? She's like, what? What'd you do? He sold your Olamaba for one ruble? You buy it back right now. <laughs> so he goes over to his wife, you know, you've never seen her like that. So he goes over to the guy and says, well, <clears throat> I'd like to, to buy back the, 
says, no, it's not for sale. Not for sale. Sorry, I have that document. It was the done deal, due diligence, not for sale. It's like, come on, it was, it was, I'll, give you, I'll give you five rubles for it. Let's just call it a deal. He says, no. I says, well, how, how much? Just a thousand, a thousand rubles? What are you nuts? <laughs> he goes back to his wife and says, there's no way I'm doing this. The stat was a thousand rubles. She says, you buy it back or else I divorce you. We're done. Finally, he ends up has to buy it for a thousand rubles and he takes the document, rips it up like this. And, uh, then they go to the, the, the so he goes back to the Rebbe and tells him and he brings this guy with him. And, uh, he tells him the whole story. And then the, the, the guy asks the Rebbe, he asks him, was my Olam Haba worth it? So he said, before you sold it, it wasn't even worth one ruble. But after you bought it back, it was worth much more than a thousand rubles. That's the story. It's a Hasidic story. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know a lot of them. This famous one. Either way, but this is, this is what he did. Like, in his mind, in Esau's mind, for, to give, uh, yeah, it's a pot of stew. It's a, it's, it's a bread and, and a bowl of soup. But it's this world. This world matters. Natural world doesn't matter at all. The spiritual realm, this doesn't matter to me. I'm going to die. Why is it at all valuable to me? The Chafetz Chaim would say on this, on this episode that we really could see about someone's life and what they value by how they respond to their own, to the inevitability of their own demise. We, we all know we're going to die, but we don't always think about it. If, you know, if someone, if someone gets a, God forbid, a terminal diagnosis, they're shooken up, right? They realize they have six months to live. How they behave during that time, or how they behave when they recognize that they're going to die, really shows us what they value. Some people, they say, I have six months to live, I want to get all the stuff off my bucket list. I want, I want, I want to just consume as much of this world as I possibly can. And the other, other people, they try to craft themselves a legacy for Lama Ba. So Talmud tells us that what's the best, most potent way to fight your Yetzirah is to remind him of the day of death. It's the most potent way to fight your Yetzirah. Why? Because Yetzirah is all about this world. You tell him about you're going to die, well, everything collapses like a, ho- a house of cards once he realized that this world has an end game, an end point. So therefore, for someone who's living for Lama Ba, the most empowering thing spiritually is for them to recognize that they're, that they're going to die. Whereas Esau, he says, I'm going to die. Why do I want this spiritual world? Give me the bowl of soup. In his world, I only have a certain amount of time for me to live. I have to maximize it in the physical realm because that's the only thing I value. And indeed, he chose, unfortunately for him at least, uh, to forfeit his his birthright, and he sold it for a bowl of soup, the um, worst transaction in all of history, worse than selling Manhattan for $24 in beads, or the Louisiana Purchase for $3 million, or uh, any other one-sided deals we could think of. It's the worst one. Very long here description of of uh, Isaac. He now retreads a lot of what Abraham did. We see this as a pattern with Isaac. Abraham said when he had to go travel that his wife was his sister. Isaac did the same. A- Abraham dug wells and Isaac dug wells. Very much it's the Torah stressing that 
Isaac was someone who was trying to integrate the Abrahamic ideals into his persona. It's almost as if, whereas Abraham kind of discovered monotheism, Isaac is the next stage, which is internalizing it, and Jacob is the third stage, which is disseminating it outward. And this is really represented in, in a lot of different ways. For example, a- Abram is born outside of Israel. He's born outside of holiness. And what does he do? He travels to Israel. He comes to the holiness. Isaac is born in Israel and is never allowed to leave Israel. So he wants to leave, and God says, no, you got to stay there. Never leave Israel. Jacob is born in Israel, and he travels elsewhere. He goes to Haran, he goes to Egypt. He kind of is the next stage of growth. Another example. Abraham is born, he's not circumcised. He comes to the holiness late in life. He circumcises when he's 100 years old. Isaac, well, he was the first circumcised at eight days. He was the one who internalized it. Jacob, what did he do? He was circumcised at eight days. But also, as we'll see, under his stewardship, an entire city of Shechem was also circumcised as well. He kind of took it and spread it outwards. Yeah, we'll get to that story. And then, unfortunately, his kids then went and slaughtered the whole city. And, and you know, we've spoken about uh, the three epochs of history, that there's the 2,000 years of chaos, 2,000 years of Torah, 2,000 years of Messiah. They really represent Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is the idea of bringing God into the world, ending the chaos, ending the distortion. Isaac is Torah, which is integrating the Torahs for the Jewish people. And Jacob is Messiah, which is to teach the world about God, to disseminate that idea. And I'll, 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 dare I say, dare I say that um, in each one of our own personal <coughs> lives, our path to greatness also follows this three-tiered approach. First, you have to kind of learn or integrate ideas into your head, so to speak. You learn Torah, it goes to your head. Does it affect you yet? Not not yet. The next stage is to integrate that, to, to uh, shorten the gap or to eliminate the gap between your, your head and your heart, like that's filling, right? It's one in your head and one connecting to your heart, to your behavior. And only once you finish that can you start kind of disseminating it for, forward as well to the degree that these ideas are clear in your in your in your head and in your behavior that's the potency you have in in pushing it out further okay so we started off the parsha with Isaac being 40 years old and getting married and we read here about Esau was also 40 years old and he married as well he married two women as well and these women caused a lot of problems they were spiritually rebellious to Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, there's a very strongly worded Rashi here. Rashi, Rashi quotes the Talmud that compares Esau to a pig. A pig is one of several animals that has one kosher symbol and not the other kosher symbol. And if you ever see the way pigs, the way, the way they crouch when they, when they sit down, they always stick their hooves out. Whereas a camel, when a camel lies down, it puts its hands, its its feet under it and sticks its neck out. The reason why it does it, says the Talmud, is because a camel has, there's two symbols for a kosher animal. It has to have split hooves and it has to re-chew its cud. So most animals have either both or none. A pig has one, it's got the split hooves, therefore it sticks its feet out like this, look at me, I'm kosher, I'm kosher, I'm kosher. 
and the camel, it takes its hooves and tucks it under itself. You see in a camel line, it's really surprising. Like the wet way it lies down. It takes his hands, or its uh, right, its front feet, and tucks it all the way under it and sticks his neck all the way out. He says, look at me, I'm kosher. Look at me, I chew my cud. It's like the animals almost physiologically are, are driven to, to try promote their kosherness. Says the Talmud about it. Esau, he's like, he's like the pig. His father was, you know, a holy man. He was someone who was raping and murdering his whole life. But when he turns 40, he says, look at me, I'm kosher. My father got married at 40. I'm going to get married at 40 as well. Look at me. Stitched out his, his hooves. I'm holy. And the only correlation between his father and him is that they got married at 40. But in, in Esau's mind, he says, look, I'm holy as well. I'm like my father. There's no difference between us. He got married at 40. I'm exactly the same way, which is, which demonstrates the divide that he had. That maybe kind of in his head, he was as holy in Esau as Isaac. And maybe he was right. Maybe there was a degree of holiness in his head that was really fantastic. But the way he behaved didn't follow suit. There's a, an interesting anecdote. When Jacob was buried, at the end of Genesis, Jacob was, was, he died in Egypt, but was brought to Israel to be buried in the same location in the Maras Machpelah, in that same cave where Abram and Sarah were buried last week. So they brought him, the whole procession brought him from Egypt, the, the body of, of Jacob, and they get to the cave, and who's standing there to stop their way? Esau. He says, I'm the firstborn. It's my spot. They say to them, no, but you sold your firstborn right. You remember? You remember that? Uh, that bowl of soup? Delicious. You don't remember? <laughs> you sold it. He's like, I don't know. You have any evidence? So like, oh gosh, we left it in Egypt. They left the document. They forgot about the document. It's 150 years earlier, right? They forgot all about it. Not 150 years, 120, uh, whatever it was, 124 years earlier. It's a long time ago, but they had the document. Everyone knew this document. It was well known. But they, for, for the, in the chaos of burying someone, transporting him. They forgot about Esau. They were in Egypt for 20 years. They, it was totally not at the forefront of their mind. So they sent Naphtali. Naphtali was the speediest of them. He said, you run back to Egypt and you don't get the document. And they're just sitting there waiting and they have the, you know, so it's, it's an embarrassment. They have the dead body of, of Jacob, but they can't bury him because he's standing in his way and we have to prove it. So Don, one of the sons of Jacob, had a son whose name was Hushim. Hushim was deaf. And he didn't, he's like, what's going on over here? He didn't, because he, he was hard of hearing. He had, he, didn't, he had no idea what was going on. So he asked someone, what's going on? So they pointed to Esau. He's blocking. He, he, he's inhibiting. He's like, what? This dude is stopping. He's causing all this shame. So he takes a stick and he hits the head of, uh, of, of Esau. He severs his head. He kills him. And problem solved. Problem solved. Yes. Problem solved. This is what the Talmud says. And they take, they take, they take Jacob and they bury him. But what happens to Esau's head? It starts rolling and it rolls and it stays in the cave as well. So Esau was buried. His body, his headless body was buried elsewhere, but his head was buried in the cave. That's what the Talmud says. So what's the idea behind that? It's a very strange story, right? 
but one of the lessons I think behind that, just the idea, is that if you just looked at Esau's head, you just looked at the head alone, not the way he behaved at all. There is a a overlap between him and Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. In his head, if we, if we just isolated his mind, he knew all the same ideas and he knew all the Torah, and he could argue, and he was as clever and as crafty in his in his in his argumentation for sure in his head. Problem was that it, it did not affect his behavior as well. His behavior was entirely separated, divorced from his head. Therefore, well, we're burying. Who are we burying? The holy people are being buried in the cave. So everyone else, it's their heads and their bodies. To him, it's just his head. Just like in his head, he was equal to everyone else. So what happens now? Um, verse in chapter twenty-seven, the story of the blessings. Isaac is getting older, and he is blind. And he calls Esau, his oldest son. He says to him, go, you know, sharpen your weaponry and go catch and hunt for me some animals and make me a magnificent rack of ribs and bring it to me and let me eat it and then I'll give you a blessing before I die. Very strange request. And Rebecca hears this. She hears it. Um, she's able to, she's snooping and she hears it and she realizes what's about to happen. And she has a different idea. And she encourages Jacob to go and usurp the blessings to get dressed up as Esau and to impersonate him and to make believe he's Esau and to bring the food and steal the blessings. That's the premise. And Jacob is resisting. He says, this is a bad idea. Why are we doing this? Uh, what, what if he finds out? Uh, I'm not going to do it. Uh, my voice sounds different. My, my, my skin feels different. I'm not so hairy. Every response that he gives, his mother swaps away. She re, you know, rebuts him. And she says, you got to do this. You got to do this. He's forced in a quandary. He has to do it, even though it's not natural for him. He's the simple guy who wants to study. But he's forced into this by his mother. Quickly, she makes him the same delicacies. She gets him dressed up in a furry coat that actually belonged to Esau, so it would, it would be passable as Esau. And she gets him dressed. She, she dresses him. Once again, he's resistant to this whole thing. She's like, I'm, I'm dressing you. You have to do this. And she even covers his neck. He's entirely, uh, he's entirely disguised as, as Esau. He goes in with the food to his father. His father says, who is this? He says, well, this is me, Esau, which could be read, this is me, I'm me, and Esau is Esau. But it also could be understood, Jacob is resisting to say outright lies. Isaac is a little confused, how come he came so fast? He tells him, they're having a conversation, and then he tells him the famous words, the hands, he feels them. First, he fills them all up. He's like, well, the hands feel like Esau, but the voice sounds exactly like Jacob. And there's a whole discussion how the why did he not disguise the voice? Was it the voice? Was it the words? Either way, he eats and he drinks and he kisses him and he says, the, the smell is wonderful. I smell Ganeden, really wonderful things. And he gives him an, a, a, a magnificent blessing. And I, want, I want to just notice what the domains of the blessings are. May God give you of the dew of the heavens and of the fatness of the earth and abundant grain and wine. All this is in the physical world. Peoples will serve you and regimes will prostrate themselves to you. You'll be a lord of your kinsmen and your mother's sons will prostrate themselves to you. Cursed be they who cursed you and blessed be they who bless you. 
that's the end. And Jacob is all excited. He got the blessings. And then Esau shows up and he realized what happened. And he plots to kill Jacob once his father passes away. He'll kill Jacob in retaliation. And that's, that's, that's the story. So a few things here that need to be examined. First of all, Isaac wants to give a blessing. So what does he say? How do we, how do we prepare for such a blessing? I want to have the biggest mountain of ribs ever seen. Go get me fresh animals, slaughter them, and make me the most delectable. Really? You want to give a blessing? Well, what, what is the connection between the two? The answer is, is that this blessing is a prophetic blessing. You want to achieve prophecy. You want to have your soul communicate with God. Your body is going to resist. You have to get your body on board as well. How do you get your body on board? You have to, exactly, you have to bribe your body. King David, right? Well, what did King David do when he went to prophecy? He would play his harp. He plays music. And the music, it's, it's not necessarily for your soul, but for your body, but it gets your body excited, gets your body on board. And I think there's a mistake that we have sometimes where we think that the body and soul are, are in opposition, and in order for the soul to triumph, you have to beat the body down. And to a certain degree, that is true. But it's not always. Sometimes the best way to deal with your enemies is to make them allies. You to defeat and try to squash your enemies. But even a better way to do that would be to get your enemies on board and to court them. So here we see this idea that Isaac wants to have his soul soar. The body's going to resist. Well, how do you get the body on board? You make a delicious steak. And you link those two together, and therefore everyone's excited about this journey you're going to take together. I think it's, it's a good lesson for us. On one hand, we have to be cognizant of the fact that there's internal conflict, and the way to assure that our soul triumphs, to prefer, to, to give superiority to our soul over the body. And indeed, a lot of mitzvahs are about that. The mitzvahs, a lot of them are about curbing the excesses of the body. But here, specifically, where you want to have not just the soul to flourish, you want the soul to absolutely ascend to meteoric heights of prophecy, the only way to do it is if you ensure that the body is not resistant, you get it on board as well. And because this is a prophetic blessing, it's actually going to happen for sure. And that really presents the danger. Because in Isaac's mind, the, the dilemma, the debate, the disagreement that Isaac and Rebekah had was not about who gets the spiritual world. Everyone agreed that that was Jacob's. Everyone knew that Jacob was destined to be the spiritual heir to Abraham and Isaac. The only disagreement was, in order for Jacob to succeed in the spiritual world, should he disavow the physical world? That's what Isaac believed. Let Esau have this physical world in its entirety. Let Jacob have the spiritual world in its entirety. And because he won't be involved at all with the physical distractions, he'll be able to concentrate entirely on the spiritual world. That was Isaac's idea. And Rebecca was more pragmatic, and she recognized that if Jacob didn't have both, they're not necessarily going to be able to be successful in being spiritual only. It's a great challenge for someone to say, I'll be entirely spiritual and not at all physical, and I'll be able to triumph as well. That was the disagreement. And therefore, she forced her way in. Indeed, we look at history. 
And we know that you know the Jews, wherever they are, in whatever country, they rise to the top. You know, I know it's something that the anti-Semites sometimes try to use. Oh, you know, the Jews control finance, they control the movement, entertainment, and to a certain degree, they're right. The facts are there. Uh, Jews are overly represented in every area. In the physical world, not just the spiritual world, not just in the realm of ideas, but in the realm of, of commerce and business. and This physical world, where does that come from? It comes from this blessing. This blessing is a prophetic blessing that's going to happen. And you look at every country just throughout history that decided to get the Jews out. What's the next thing that always happens in their history? They start to tank. And even in, in, in Spain and Portugal, when they kicked the Jews out, they welcomed them back in a couple of years later. The Jews said, we're not interested, but because the economy collapsed. There's a great story, apparently, what happened was the Germans sent all their anti-Semitic literature to Japan, to their allies. And like, oh, these Jews, they control the finance, and they're the masterminds behind it. They're like, yeah, bring them aboard. We need some of those people. <laughs> yeah, but, the, you know, this... This is in the Torah, but this is thousands of years old. It's already determined that Jacob will have a leg up in this, in the race, in this world as well as natural. Did, did a lot of people erroneously think that Isaac preferred Esau entirely? He loved him and wanted to give him the blessings. That's true, but only in the physical blood. You'll notice here, there's no mention about Israel and there's no mention about the blessing of Abraham. Once at the end of the Parsha, where Jacob is sent away to go find a spouse for him, Isaac tells Jacob as follows. Isaac summoned Jacob and blessed him. And he instructed him and said, Do not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Where have we seen that before? That was the same instruction that Abraham gave Isaac. Go to Padan Aram. Fine. And verse 3, And may God bless you and make you fruitful, make you numerous, and may you be a congregation of nations. May he grant you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may possess the land of your soldiers which God gave to Abraham. Clearly, the blessing of Abraham was always reserved for Jacob. And the only question was the blessing of this world and the fat of the land and the dew of the heavens. All that he intended to give to Esau, but Rebecca cleverly ensured uh, that we will get that as well. So what happens? Esau comes back with uh, with the stake, and he comes to and he comes to Isaac, and he tells him, "Okay, I brought you the food. Come eat it." And as I went, wait a minute, slow down. Who are you? He says, "Well, I'm Esau." So Isaac starts trembling. He realizes all that happens. What's going on? Someone came before you, and I blessed him. Indeed, he shall remain blessed. So Isaac does not recant, does not revoke his blessing uh, to Jacob. And then Esau is totally devastated, and he cries out, and it's seemingly great and bitter cry. He says, well, give me some blessing. And his father says to him, I'm sorry, your brother came with cleverness, and he stole it. And then Isaac, uh, Esau responds, well, his name is Jacob, which is Hebrew for uh, Akev or Yaakov, which means to inhibit or to curb. And he outwitted me these two times. Well, first he stole my birthright, and now he told, stole my blessing. Isaac becomes aware that Esau had sold his birthright, and therefore, justifiably, Jacob deserves those blessings as well. He gives him a reconciliatory blessing. 
so Isaac, Isaac, his father answered, and he said to him, Behold, of the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and the dew of the heavens from above. By your sword you shall live, by your brother you shall serve. Yet it shall be that when you are grieved, you may cast off his yoke from upon your neck. So he does offer him some solace by saying, you'll live by the sword, you'll still be subject to Jacob, so to speak. But there is a hope, like if he's not doing his job well, then you could uh, cast your yoke off of your neck. And we see this, you know, the Jewish people, we're in, we're in a good place where we're being Jacob. You know, when we're fulfilling our destiny as Jacob, we're okay. Otherwise, we're going to have to live under the threat of the sword of Esau. Okay, so what's the last thing that happens here? Esau is furious and he wants to exact revenge on Jacob. And he says, when the days of mourning of my father draws near, I'll kill my brother Jacob. And if someone doesn't care about murder, as Esau clearly does not, why is he so worried? I'll wait till... I'll wait till my father dies, uh, uh, you know, because you don't want your father to see it. It seems very strange. Esau knew that so long as Jacob is in the tent, so to speak, he has Torah, he has the power of Torah, he couldn't attack him. He even got the blessing now. He knows that the power of your sword is limited to affect Jacob only if Jacob is not doing his responsibility, being in the tent and having the blessing of Abraham. He's kind of shielded by the Torah. And therefore, what, is, what does Esau say? He doesn't say, let my, the, doesn't say, let my father, when my father dies, I'm going to kill him. So in the days of mourning of my father, during the period of mourning where everyone has to stop Torah study and they have to go and mourn, that's when Jacob will be vulnerable and that's when I'll go after him. Rebecca finds out uh, Esau's nefarious plans. She says, Jacob, I'm going to send you out, send you away. I'm going to, you have to flee to safety. And she tells Isaac as well. She says, well, Jacob can't be here. We have to go get, find him a wife from my family back east. And Isaac summons Jacob and says, I want you to go away. Gives him the blessing of Abraham. Send Jacob away. And he heads to Padanaram, to uh, to Lavan, to the Lavan is the his uncle, Rebecca's brother. We met him last week, and he's going to marry one of Lavan's daughters, and thus the parsha ends. And next week we'll see, we'll get uh, into the life of of Jacob. Some really interesting things happen to him along the way, and once he gets there, he's going to have to contend with a new foe. And this is a, a pattern throughout Jacob's life. He's never, you know, he, he wants to stay in the tent, but he's always forced out of the tent. He's forced to the tent to go steal a blessing. That's an unnatural thing for him. He's forced to the tent to flee from Esau. He's forced out of the tent to have to engage with the trickery of Lavan. He has to go back and meet Esau again. And his life is one of difficulty, but of ultimate triumph.